Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Frederick Studeman, the FT's literary editor, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. In 2013, Edward Snowden was responsible for one of the biggest US intelligence leaks ever. He's now just published a memoir called Permanent Record, which offers his version of the events that took place then. My colleague Janine Gibson was at that point The Guardian's US editor, and she oversaw the publication of the story. She's now with me in the studio here at the FT to share her impressions of the man and his motives and tell us what she thinks of his book and the consequences of the actions that it exposed. Welcome, Janine. Before we launch into your thoughts on Snowden's book and the issues it addresses, I think it'd be good if we just first heard a clip from the Guardian interview in which Snowden publicly identified himself as the source of the leak way back then. You can't come forward against the world's most powerful intelligence agencies and uh, be completely free from risk because they're such powerful adversaries that that no one can meaningfully oppose them. Um, If they want to get you, they'll get you in time. So it must be quite funny, I'm guessing, for you to hear that um, now six years later, is it? Yes, I haven't I haven't listened to that in six years. And very much as when I read the book, it took me back very profoundly to it was an incredibly intense time, as you can imagine, and not one that afforded a great deal of reflection or pause. And then afterwards, we were just so exhausted. You sort of didn't really think about it very much either and just move on to the next thing. So it's been a slightly strange week for me, to be honest. OK, well, before we get on to that, just tell listeners, how did the story come to you? I mean, literally, did someone just ring you up or did you come into the office and someone said, look at this? Or So we had gone to America to launch Guardian US which was a digital version of The Guardian in America for Americans. And I had hired this writer, Glenn Greenwald, who at the time was a sort of, you know, moderately well-known, quite lefty slash libertarian lawyer blogger with a strong interest in First Amendment and freedom of expression issues. And he was difficult and very hard to manage. And it had been a fairly controversial appointment that got a moderate amount of attention. And he and I had a fairly you know, robust relationship. And he rang me up one day and said, I've got the biggest national security leak in a generation. Pretty much like that. Wow. And I pretty much thought... Heard this I mean, one before. <laughs> you might have, or, or maybe not, Glenn. And, you know, he wasn't a reporter. So I, I really didn't think it was that likely. Also, I knew he was sat in his house in Rio, surrounded by rescue dogs, on a Skype phone. And because I had worked a little bit on the WikiLeaks cables release for The Guardian the year before, the one thing that I knew was that Skype was not secure, that Skype was hackable. So I was like, are you talking to me on your Skype phone? Yes. Okay, maybe stop, just get on a plane, come to New York. So he came to New York and he arrived with an air gap computer, a computer that had never connected to the internet, and a sample which the source had sent him, of documents. And there was a sort of written manifesto from the source and the slides from what we later knew was the PRISM presentation, which showed that sort of diagram in very clunky PowerPoint of all these enormous tech companies joining this programme that the government was claiming it could tap into everybody's communications, the NSA. And we were sat on this very, very inauspicious sofa in my office. I think it cost all of you like 75 quid from US IKEA. All huddled around this awful clunky computer, looking at these terrible slides that my 13-year-old would have gone, "Mm, I think think we can do better. I was going, I mean, 
it's either really, really massive or the Hitler diaries and not an especially good Hitler diaries. You know, if you were really trying to afford, you'd have done a better job. And I sort of, I don't know, we spent a lot of time trying to speculate why somebody would walk out of the NSA who clearly had a huge access and, and we assumed was very, very, very senior, would walk out with all these secrets and want to spill them. We had no idea and neither did Glenn who the source was. And Laura Poitras, who made the film about Snowden, was sort of skulking around the corridor, not really wanting to be in the office for the meeting. And Glenn was saying, well, I really think, you know, I should go to Hong Kong and meet him. And I thought, I need somebody on the ground who's a proper reporter as well and a proper Guardian reporter. Glenn is great, but he's been at the Guardian five minutes. It's going to be very difficult to talk. I cannot take Glenn's word for it. So I honestly looked out my office door and happily just sat in front of the office was Ewan McCaskill, who was the absolute person you would want to be there. And he just was in New York that week and happened to be sitting there. And he was the firefighter. He was our diplomatic editor. He'd been the US political editor. He'd done every relevant job that you'd want. So we called him in and we ended up sending Ewan, Glenn and Laura to Hong Kong to meet with what we assumed was a sort of late career NSA senior grizzled old hand who possibly had a terminal disease and an attack of conscience. And they found this 29-year-old man carrying a Rubik's Cube. So now, revisiting that story, meeting it again, if you like, on the pages of his book, what was that like for you? Do you think it was a fair account? The really strange thing is that this feels like such a huge part of my life. And of course, my bit of it, in terms of his book... It's about 30 pages in the middle, an off-camera bit of his book, because his story is all about what led him to the decisions, what made him be the person that would do this, all stuff that we were obsessed with, but didn't in any way form part of the story. Did you learn anything new about his own journey to making that decision? He's an incredibly private person, as you might imagine, given the concerns he has about intrusion and surveillance. So we learned very little about him during the whole process. He was very keen to keep himself out of our decision-making and very keen to only talk about the story and its impact and keep himself out of it, not to become as the whistleblower, sort of bigger than the revelations that he was making. And then even afterwards, there's very strange things that happen, Fred, when you do a story like this. You know, you end up sort of having meetings with Harvey Weinstein or Oliver Stone and Barbara Broccoli because the Guardian needs to recoup some money, and that's fair enough. We must have spent a fortune on the story. So they sell the film rights. And Oliver Stone sort of took me out for a drink and said, I'm going to go to Moscow and talk to Edward Snowden and I want to really get the story of the man. And I thought, well, good luck with that. But actually, I think he did do that. And I think that probably encouraged Edward Snowden a little bit to tell a bit more of his story to explain his motivation. To what extent do you get the sense that Snowden was trying to steer the public? I mean, you've described him as sort of very withdrawn and not very forthcoming, but did he also try to sort of manage the story? No, I mean, what he did was he was quite careful about what he gave us access to. So there wasn't the most huge indiscriminate data dump that a lot of people characterised at the time, but that was a sort of propaganda. And we did not want to be specific about what we had for obvious reasons. And he did not tell us what to write. He never told us what to write. He offered guidance to the reporters on the ground in Hong Kong. But remember, quite quickly, he was either in transit or stranded in Moscow airport for this quite long period of limbo time, or then off in a remote Moscow location. So he really wasn't available. And the few interactions 
I had were via very highly encrypted chat. This is before Signal or Telegram or any of those things because they were all created because of what he did. We had random computers hooked up to Tails and Tor that weren't allowed to do anything else and then we'd sort of sit round and have these very filmic, you know, it felt like a spy movie. Everything felt like a spy movie where you'd talk and I would say, look, we're going to involve the New York Times because we're worried the document's going to get seized and we need a US news organisation because they won't break down the door of the New York Times. And he would say, whatever you think is best. Wow. You mentioned earlier on Assange. Yes. Tell us quickly, what was it like dealing with these two? I assume that was a completely different experience. Any editor will tell you, you cannot choose your sources and it's probably best not to align yourself with your source too much because by definition, they have an agenda. They're risking quite a lot. And at some point, your interests are going to diverge because your job is obviously to try not to expose or jeopardise your source unless they're going to expose themselves, as Snowden did, and to tell the story as fairly as possible. And that might not be the story as the source sees it. And we had had quite a gunpoint relationship with Julian Assange where he had done an extraordinary thing and worked with us on these stories. But there was a very key aspect, it seemed to me, of the WikiLeaks-Guardian relationship that was difficult. And I was slightly outside that one. I was not running that story. Which was that sort of every time you would want to redact a cable or remove something in order to do it properly and responsibly, which is really the only way you can justify publishing secret stuff. You had this source who would say, well you got published all of it and if you don't, I will. And it was, yeah, kind of quite a gunpoint relationship and quite fractious around those questions. Whereas Edward Snowden, we never had a moment's trouble with that. He was quite romantic about journalism in a way that seems very of its time and probably even more of its time now because almost no one's romantic about journalism now. But he really felt that editors and journalists and reporters would make responsible, careful decisions about the public interest. He wanted British reporters looking at British documents from GCHQ and American reporters looking at American documents from the NSA because he felt the sort of national interest and the patriotic aspects of it was really important. And we came up with quite a lot of rules and guidelines because... We wanted to respect the trust he'd put in us. So we weren't going to reveal any operational detail. We weren't going to put anyone in danger. And every single document we published, we went to the White House. I spent hours on the phone saying, right, we're going to publish this, this, this and this. These slides, these pages. Do you have any specific national security concerns? The first conversation was hilarious, where... Many men named Bob and Sean, it wasn't hilarious, I was petrified. Many men named Bob and Sean who were deputy directors of agencies and they were all lined up going, I run the FBI, I run the CIA, all to frighten me. And they were going, this is not journalism. And I was being my full Mary Poppins British. (laughs) (laughs) Can you advise me on the national security? But I'll be the judge of whether it's journalism or not. When did you last see Snowden? I went to see him just after I left The Guardian. So it must be four years ago now with Alan Rusperger, who was the editor of The Guardian at the time, and with Ewan, the reporter. We went to Moscow and I had never met him in person. It was a very, very, very big deal. It was a real privilege, actually. I was very anxious and nervous that he would feel that we hadn't done right by him. You're really conscious of what has happened to his life. He's a lot more public now. You know, he tweets, he appears via video chat things at conferences and is tentatively, but a lot more public. At the time, he really wasn't. I don't think Lindsay had joined him yet. That's his girlfriend, who he's now married to. But he says in the book he's now married. But you're piecing together this stuff and really trying to sort of work out what's going on with him because he's very, very, very reluctant to give out information. And I just got the sense that he was quite lonely and quite isolated. And I felt 
very concerned. I thought, what's he doing all day apart from regret it and slightly hate us? And of course, he wasn't like that at all. I remember asking him whether he regretted it, and he was very clear that he didn't. Have you had any contact with him since? He tweets at me occasionally. Oh, right. Do you tweet back? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. But then some of the other responses are a bit niche. There was a period of time after the stories where you heard from everybody in America who thought the CIA were in their microwave. Right. Did you learn anything else from the book that surprised you? I mean, obviously, you've talked about the personal stuff about Snowden, but was there anything else? There are a couple of incidents that he talks about that really struck me in that they added to the thing I have always asked myself about what his motivation was, because he was so young to come out and do this and throw his life in the air. One is a passage where he describes going through some SIG int, which is signal intelligence, which is the sort of core stuff that is seized. And this is through a camera on somebody's laptop or computer. And he's watching footage from a minor academic. This is the kind of justification that was very controversial in the revelations where somebody who's three hops away from a suspect, you could seize all their communications directly. And we're all basically three hops from somebody suspicious. And so this is a sort of minor academic who's sitting at his computer, I don't know, doing some work or whatever, with his kid in his lap. And Snowden describes looking from the camera's perspective, directly into the eyes of this little kid sitting on his father's lap, this guy who's done nothing, and the feeling of sort of... There's a real revulsion that comes through, a real distaste. And then there's a second incident where he's talking about some of his colleagues who are seizing and sharing and swapping and guffawing at nudes. This was a story that we did, but there was a, a known thing, and we had documents about it, where NSA agents and CIA agents who were going through these huge amounts of raw intelligence, not intelligence, just communications that they'd seized, and they would select nudes and, you know, if you see someone hot and then the game is that you share it with your mates. And then they all do it because it's a bonding thing because if you're all doing it together, then nobody's setting them above anybody else. And you really get this sense of his revulsion at that and the real contempt that he holds them in. And that's a distancing, sort of radicalising moment for him. I found those two passages much more revealing and personal of him, honestly, than the few facts that he sort of dots through about his actual life. OK, well, before we finish, let's just hear another clip from that Snowden interview. If you realise that that's the world that you helped create, and it's going to get worse with the next generation and the next generation who extend the capabilities of this sort of architecture of oppression... Uh, you realize that you might be willing to accept any risk and it doesn't matter what the outcome is so long as the public gets to make their own decisions about how that's applied. Janine, just finally, looking back now at that whole incident and the Snowden revelations, putting it into the bigger picture of how we view technology, the intelligence service, surveillance, is this the moment where the great backlash against tech can be dated from, from you know, the revelations of Edward Snowden as played out in The Guardian and elsewhere? I really believe that, actually. I've been thinking that for some time as the drip, drip of various exploits, you know, the back doors and trap doors and whatever, into the software and hardware that we use all the time, that, you know, the drip, drip effect of those exploits coming out now clearly is linked to people's suspicion and discomfort around it. But it's so directly linked to the things that we learned about in his revelations and the lesson that he was trying to get us to get our heads around, which is you might think that your government is doing this for your own safety. You might think, you know, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. I can still hear William Haig saying that on Radio 4. And you might think that. That might be a trade-off you're willing to make. But at some point, it will be a different president. And not just that, a company will sell that exploit to a very 
fear-making regime or a bunch of criminals and people with something to hide and a great deal to fear but who aren't necessarily bad actors could be put in great danger. Now, I don't think people rose up in the way that Edward Snowden might have hoped in the first flush of response. And there were a bunch of quite minor, really, but pacifying law changes on both sides of the Atlantic to sort of try and take into account people's outrage. More interestingly, the collection programmes that he revealed have ceased. But I suspect that's only because they've got new and better ways. And I don't think that's tinfoil hat. I think that's sort of perfectly obvious. But what we do see now is the law enforcement agencies having a bit of a whinge. So they'll say, there's all these encrypted messages on WhatsApp or Signal that we can't get hold of, and that's not helping. They have to whinge publicly. Now, we might decide that we're happy to give up that privacy in order to secure our safety, although bulk collections never the answer because they simply can't sift through it. It's too much. But at least now they have to ask. And I think that's really important that we know. Right. So that is a sort of positive outcome from that. Janine, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on Edward Snowden's book, Permanent Record. And thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our episodes on the breakdown of talks between the US and the Afghan Taliban, the prospects for air taxis in our cities, or the UK's constitutional crisis over Brexit, you can find them on all the usual podcast platforms. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.